Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I've had a few weeks off, probably a month in total, where I've been um, laying low, um, just surfing, um, a local break, um, taking it easy, riding a few motorbikes, um, and just regenerating. Um, you've got to regenerate when you work in an emergency. You've really got to make sure you look after yourself. Um, and this week we're covering paracetamol overdoses with an awesome um, clinician, Daniel Gatani. Welcome to the ED Jam. Alright, hey everybody, welcome to the ED Jam. I am sitting out here with Daniel Gatani. Um, we're out in Campbelltown. I'm pretty pumped. I've had about four weeks off surfing and chilling out and now we're ready to crack into it. Um, today we're going to be covering paracetamol overdoses. Um, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Benny, for letting me be here. Dude, I'm pretty pumped. Um, yeah. Dude, first of all, who is Daniel Gatani? Um, so I am a emergency staff specialist at Campbelltown and Camden Hospitals and I previously worked at Sutherland with Benny um, where I first started being a staff specialist there after my training at Liverpool. Um, and so yeah, I work here mostly, um, work here full time and I'm also the co-DMT uh, so I uh, coordinate um, the trainees' education and career progression with one of the other staff specialists, uh, Dr. Alex Butfield. Nice. Do a lot of do a lot of stuff. Yeah, yep. Do a lot of stuff. A lot of special interests in different areas. So yep. you know, psychology is one of them, which is why we're going to talk about Panadol today. Cool. Panadol already popped two this morning. Yeah, that's good. I've got a cracking headache, so I cracked two. Hopefully, that's not too much, Dan. Now, um, Campbelltown, this area, this catchment area. It seems to attract a lot of attention. Um, are we in one of the busiest emergency departments in the state? Uh, yeah, we are. So um, Campbelltown and Camden uh, emergency departments make up the MacArthur Area Health Service. Last New South Wales Health um, data review, uh, it seems that we're seeing the most patients in the state when we combine our two departments together. Mm. Um, Campbelltown uh, by itself is situated about uh, fifth uh, behind Liverpool and North Shore. Wow. And you've worked at a couple of those hospitals anyway. You have yeah, worked so, at both. Yeah, so I've worked at, um, at Liverpool. I did uh, about eight years there um, as a registrar. And uh, I can say that Campbelltown is just as busy. We're seeing as many patients each day as Liverpool. And they've got the same high complexity as, as Liverpool patients do. Uh, we are a trauma bypass. We don't get to see the exciting trauma um, patients that Liverpool does, but we do see a lot of sick medical patients. Yep, and I've heard about a lot of these patients that I'm mind-boggled on what they come in with. And you've got a bit of a COVID-movid happening here. I'm assuming you have to be N95. Yeah, that's right. I, I, need, I hate not having facial hair, so <coughs> I've had to trim back to put on an N95 and sure I had a good seal, but um, I've allowed myself to grow a mo, which is in keeping with the uh, World Health Organization uh, manscaping criteria. <laughs> I'll put up pictures for the manscaping. I think Maxi got me onto that as well. Now, mate, um, also I wanted to touch on the first time I actually ever met you, um, which was actually just for everyone to paint a picture. We had a guy with a shoulder dislocation just off topic. Um, and we're going to touch on a little bit, maybe a little bit about ultrasound because you love ultrasound. It's one of your also your passions. Yep, that's right. Um, and you did an inter um, interscaling block. Yep. Um, and I've never seen this before. So um, for me, you're one of those people that I guess are at the forefront of emergency medicine, and that's why I brought you here today. Cool. Um, dude, can we get into Panadol? What is paracetamol? 
So, I mean, Panadol is um, a, a simple analgesic and an antipyretic, um, and it's uh, widely available as an over-the-counter medication and also is not just a single uh, agent, but it can also be mixed with other, other over-the-counter medications such as cold and flu preparations. Okay. How does it work? Yeah. I, I, I popped two Panadol this morning, Dan, as yep. in like paint the picture going inside the body, I've cracked two Panadol down. Yep. Um, where does it go? What does it do? If I, if I keep it down, yeah. where, where does it go? So basically, we'll, we'll go through some of the, um, the pharmacokinetics, and that's, like you just said, Benny, it goes through from absorption down to elimination, so from the mouth down to us excreting it from our body. Um, and so the pharmacokinetics for paracetamol are that it's very well absorbed from the GI tract uh, mm. when it's taken in an oral formulation. It's got about 90% bio, bioavailability, which means it's uh, readily absorbed. Uh, reaches a peak serum concentrations uh, within two hours for tablets and, and 30 minutes for liquid formulations in children. And then once it hits the, the plasma, it, it then gets bind to some proteins, um, but that protein binding is quite low, so it's only 20%, which means there's a large fraction there that's uh, not bound to proteins. It's then passed through the liver, as many drugs are, and metabolised there, and this is called first-pass metabolism. And so the liver aims to uh, break down the paracetamol into non-toxic metabolites. Okay. Uh, and then that's usually through uh, glucuronidation um, and also sulfation. And these inactive metabolites are then excreted in the urine. Um, so the elimination half-life is about one and a half to three hours. Um, so just to bear in mind, uh, when we're thinking about overdose, um, there is one pathway for normal metabolism. So for the two panadol that you took this morning for your cracking headache, yep. a small percentage of that will go through the liver okay. and it goes down the oxidation pathway. Um, and that then forms a toxic metabolite, which is then uh, bound to a substrate and then excreted as a non-toxic metabolite. Okay. Yep. Dude, you've blown my mind in about two seconds. <laughs> And I've gone, wow. And we will put in some journal articles and some maybe some pharmacokinetics yeah. in the show notes yeah. for people to follow that pathway on how Panadol works. And I guess the question is, why are we talking about Panadol overdoses? Are they common in emergency departments? Um, are they not common? Um, and why are they important for us to know as clinicians? Yeah, um, so I guess because it's an over-the-counter medication, it's so readily available, I can go down to your local grocery store and, and pick up some Panadol. Um, and because it's in... You know, most of our uh, drug cabinets at home, it's easily accessible. And so in patients who have had a situational crisis or um, an emotional event and they decide to have a super, take a super therapeutic in, um, ingestion of, of Panadol, it's there and it's ready to go. Um, so accidental or non-accidental uh, super ther therapeutic paracetamol ingestions uh, are the leading pharmaceutical agent responsible for calls to the Poisons Information Centre. And... Complications of super therapeutic paracetamol ingestions can include hepatic failure and death. And luckily these are uncommon, um, but they, these complications do remain the single most important cause of acute fulminant hepatic failure in Western countries. And that's why it's important to know uh, about paracetamol toxicity and, and us to be vigilant with, it, with uh, assessing and managing patients who present to emergency departments who've uh, had an overdose of any medication. We need to always have a high clinical index of suspicion that they've also taken Panadol, um, especially in those patients who've got an altered mental state. So Dan, I've got a case for you. Yep. Is that all right? Yeah, go for it. So you're 
NED, you got an 18 year old female yep. um, with a background of depression and anxiety. Yep. She's brought in by ambulance uh, as an involuntary patient um, under the Mental Health Act following an intentional um, ingestion of paracetamol. Yep. Um, what is paracetamol and why is it dangerous in Savido? So why is this, we'll run through that case. How would you approach this sort of patient? Yeah, so approaching this patient who's taken uh, what we assume to be a super therapeutic uh, dose of paracetamol, um, we'd perform a risk assessment. And so our risk assessment uh, would be to identify uh, what the time of ingestion was, what the formulation of the paracetamol was. Um, so obviously this, it's important to know whether it's immediate release or liquid or modified release identify whether it's a single or repeated supertherapeutic ingestion, whether she's taken any other medications in addition to the paracetamol. If she falls into a higher risk group of for hepatotoxicity, so these include patients with malnutrition or coexisting hepatic impairments such as with alcohol misuse uh, and other medications such as isoniazid, which is used for tuberculosis treatment. Um, her medical comorbidities, any other regular medications that she may take, what are her social circumstances and her mental health history, that way we can have a holistic approach to her um, assessment and ongoing management as an inpatient. Um, and then if we identify that she has taken a super therapeutic dose of paracetamol, so um, that would be more than, more than or equal to 10 grams or more than or equal to 200 milligrams per kilo, whichever is obviously lower. Mm -hmm. Um, then we can continue on and, and this will guide our, our uh, investigations and ongoing management. Uh, the same approach to whether it be nurses or, yep. or junior doctors or medical yep. students or registrars, the, pro the approach is the same cool. um, and I think risk assessment is the first part of that approach yep. um, and so those components which I just mentioned with regards to risk assessment are important for all patients regardless of whether they come in um, with a, a paracetamol supertherapeutic ingestion or another um, toxidrome. Um, and then the next part after risk assessment is then uh, uh, ordering investigations based on that assessment and then administering an antidote if one is available and the, the risk-benefit ratio uh, favours more benefit than risk. Thinking about how we can decontaminate the, the GI tract if that's necessary, so with activated charcoal yep. or um, whole bowel irrigation. And then beyond that are uh, enhanced elimination techniques. So for some uh, toxins, we need to think about how we can increase the elimination rate of that toxin from the body. And then finally, any supportive management and what our disposition uh, decision will be with respect to either admitting them or transferring them to another tertiary institution or allowing them to be discharged home for follow-up. And that 18-year-old tells you that she's not going to take the charcoal, Dan. She yep. doesn't want to eat it. She doesn't yep. want to drink it. It's yep. disgusting. Yep. Um, these patients, if they're monitored in like a SAR room, are you, do you want them on a monitor? Do you want them to, you know, do you want a 12 lead on them? Um, you've sent off some bloods. So they're happy to, you know, get a blood test. Yeah. So I guess with the super. I, yeah. So I guess again, that that's all boils down to your risk assessment and cool. what the patient's actually taken. So paracetamol in itself doesn't really cause cardiotoxicity or neurotoxicity, which means that they don't really need to be 
um, monitored from a cardiac or neurological standpoint. Yep. Uh, but if they have taken it with a, another medication, such as a tricyclic antidepressant, which has both cardiotoxic and neurotoxic um, elements to it, then those patients should ideally be observed in a resuscitation area yep. where they can have continuous cardiorespiratory monitoring and there's readily accessible equipment for advanced airway and life support measures should they be needed. Yep. Um, but as a sole ingestion, they could be monitored and treated in a observation room or secluded area such mm -hmm. as the SARS room. Cool. Um, but again, it, like I said, it just boils down to what, what the risk assessment uh, details. Yeah. Now back to the patient, let's say she weighs 65 kilos yep. um, and she took a single ingestion of you know 25 paracetamol tablets, yep. 500 milligrams, yep. um, four, four hours, under four hours. Sure, okay, so that, that I guess that equates to 12 and a half grams, so that, that meets our definition of a supertherapeutic ingestion. Yep. Um, so with regards to that, uh, I guess investigations that we need to organise are uh, some liver function tests, most importantly an ALT yep. and a serum paracetamol level, which is presented within 24 hours. The other things that are important for this particular patient are a beta-HCG, she's a female of childbearing age and therefore if she's pregnant that will also change the way we assess and manage her if she's yep. pregnant. Um, all patients, regardless of what they've ingested, should have a 12 litre ECG performed, so we need to get that done as well. Um, and just for argument's sake, if she was to present beyond 24 hours, and the other things we need to think about ordering are uh, an INR and coagulation studies. And if her ALT came back and was elevated, we need to organise um, for an EUC, uh, a BSL phosphate of blood gas, in addition to an INR, and the rest of LF LFTs to be collected and sent as well. Um, Why phosphate? Phosphate, so... I always thought with phosphate, meh, what's your phosphate gonna do? Yeah. You know, I know it sounds silly here, but I always... Yeah, so I, I guess it's just part of that whole um, holistic approach to this patient. I mean. If she, if she has some sort of malabsorption or malnutrition disorder, yep. then phosphate is something that we might need to replace okay. as part of her ongoing treatments. Um, so that's why it's important to get phosphate in this, in this particular patient. That's good. Uh, and you mentioned the time, which I thought was really interesting about the ingestion time, which became yeah. important to you. Yeah, so, so she's, she's presented um, four hours post-ingestion. And so what the reason timing is important in patients who have taken Panadol um, in supertherapeutic doses is because it relates to the efficacy of our antidote and our antidote is a set of cysteine or okay. NAC. Yep. And so if we can administer NAC within eight hours of a supertherapeutic ingestion, then we can significantly reduce their risk of hepatotoxicity. Okay. okay. But beyond eight hours, the efficacy is well, has not been well established. Yep. It's not to say that we shouldn't administer it, but it's not as effective as if we do administer within eight hours. And so I think as emergency clinicians, both nurses and doctors working in emergency departments throughout Australia, um, if we're triaging patients or caring for patients mm -hmm. who may have taken paracetamol, we need to be really vigilant about identifying when they've taken it because the timing is important, again, with respect to, to NAC administration. Okay. What is NAC? Yeah, so, so NAC is a, um, NAC stands for N-acetylcysteine. 
It stinks. It stinks. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, it's a it's a medication that's provided as an infusion in patients who have taken um, super therapeutic ingestions of Panadol, um, and the aim of it is to mop up that excess paracetamol in patients' uh, serum to avoid any further uh, hepatotoxicity related to that toxic metabolite, NAPQI. Okay. Like a sponge almost? Like kind of, yeah. So in, in patients who, um, so I, I guess it is like a sponge because we have glutathione that's produced in our liver and our glutathione stores become depleted when we've got a lot of nap, NAPQI circulating around. And so mm. the, the NAP will aim to um, substitute for glutathione. Um, and so we'll try and sponge up that napqui and and try and uh, enhance its uh, excretion as an inactive metabolite and prevent further hepatotoxicity. So we're going to manage this uh, eighteen-year-old. Yep. Um, how are we going to do it, Dan? Okay. So we we've done a timed paracetamol. She's presented within um, that eight-hour time frame of ingestion, and so we've done a timed paracetamol level at four hours, and I'm assuming that it's come back elevated. It's up, Dan, it's up, mate. about management. So what we do is we take that paracetamol level and we, and we plot it on the Rumac Matthew um, nomogram. I love those nomograms, they're really easy to read. Yep. <laughs> just, just, just bear in mind that, that with, with regards to the nomogram that there's different um, concentrations there on the, on the y-axis and the x-axis, and so just be mindful of what your institution has with regards to it being in micromoles per litre or milligrams per litre. So we've got a, an elevated paracetamol level, it's returned, we've plotted on the nomogram and, and it's on or above the treatment line. So I guess management for this particular patient, um, if, she, if she was cooperative and conscious, yep. and she's obviously, and she had presented within two hours of her ingestion, we could give her charcoal. Um, but it sounds like she doesn't want that. She doesn't want it, do Yeah, you? she doesn't like the <laughs> smell, that's fine. Um, but we should really try and, and, and give charcoal wherever possible, yep. um, especially within in, in particular patients where the risk outweighs the uh, is not outweighed by the benefit. Um, and so it'd be 50 grams in adults or one gram per kilo in children. Um, for our patient who's presented um, at four-hour mark and her levels elevated at, um, it's and it's on or above the treatment line then we're going to be starting an acetylcysteine versus the NAC. Um, so if it's on or above the nomogram treatment line but not double the or triple the nomogram treatment line then we're just going to commence our standard two-bag um, NAC infusion and um, what we then do is we continue that infusion for 20 hours and then they'll need to be admitted under a medical team in the hospital and so in most hospitals that will be the gastroenterology team or if there's a toxicological service at a particular at that particular hospital then they, they might um, admit the patient under their care otherwise the general medical team may admit that patient and then two hours before the, the completion of that NAC infusion, we're going to be measure, measuring that paracetamol level and their ALT and AST again. And if, they're less, if her ALT and AST are less than 50 international units per litre and her paracetamol level is less than 10 milligrams per litre or less than 66 micromoles per litre, then we can then stop that infusion. But if they're not, then we need to continue that infusion 
um, until until they are. Yeah, I loved how you included that they could be other specialties could be included in that. Yeah, because nothing worse than having a patient who is unwell um, under the wrong medical team, and also you know I'm assuming they could have some mental health input in that as well and other. Yeah, yeah. so I think mental health needs to engage these patients from presentation to ED. Um, there are some places where there the, there's dedicated ED team, ED team, sorry, and there's dedicated uh, ward consultant liaison psychiatric services, um, and so they might not be seen in ED if they're thought to require a medical admission for ongoing medical management of their presentation, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be engaged in their care from the outset, so they can then liaise with their inpatient colleagues to, to ensure that this patient gets the adequate mental health input that they need from time zero. Yep, referring early is a good good option. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I'm gonna throw another case at you. Yep. I just love to throw it. And I'm, you know what, I'm gonna go with another young person. Sure, <laughs> go for it. So I've got a 17 year old um, female who's been brought in with a reduced level of consciousness following an intentional overdose of unknown quantity of alprazolam. Do I throw that one at you? Yep. And some cold and flu, you know, typical, we're in the, you know, yep. preparation, containing immediate release paracetamol. Sure. Um, what are we gonna do with this girl? Yeah, so, she, she differs slightly from the first one because we don't have an exact quantity of what she's taken. And I think, um, therefore, her management differs in a sense because we need to now start NAC straight away. Okay. Um, and until we can get some evidence to suggest that she's either not taken a super therapeutic ingestion or um, whether the, she has taken a super therapeutic ingestion, we, we then have to then monitor her paracetamol level, where that lies on the treatment line, etc. So we start the nap when she comes in, because we don't know how much she's taken. She can't give us a reliable history, but she's got a reduced level of consciousness, which yep. is secondary to the alprazolam and maybe some codeine or antihistamines that are in that cold and flu preparation. And then we can then cease the nap if she can either give us a reliable an accurate history or a caregiver or someone else can give us a collateral history that um, she has not ingested more than 10 grams or not more than 200 milligrams per kilo. Um, if that's not the case then we'll, we'll continue the nap, we'll do a serum paracetamol level at, at triage on presentation and also some LFTs. And if her paracetamol level is undetectable and her ALT and AST are normal then we can consider ceasing the, the NAC. We've got a either a detectable paracetamol level or we can't get an accurate history mm. either from her or a collateral history. Then we decide to admit her and continue the, the NAC infusion. Then it then the cessation of the NAC would then be after we get um, an ALT, ASC and paracetamol level before well, two hours before we stop. And if they're all normal then we can stop it then. So they're, they're the three yep. three um three considerations we need to consider when, when stopping the NAC for this for this particular patient. But and if you do start the NAC, yep. like it's not gonna, you know, you're not gonna do any damage. Like, you know, you've thrown, you started the NAC and you're like, oh, I'm gonna start NAC, I'm waiting for that. She is reduced level of consciousness. Yeah. We're thinking that she's probably had yep. a paracetamol overdose with everything else. Yep. It's okay to go ahead and, yeah, with I, consultation with someone, obviously. What, I, yeah, I think um, obviously these patients where you're unsure about the, the time or quantity, then if you're um, a nurse at, at triage or SIN or a junior medical officer, then this is in conjunction with a more senior ED colleague. Yep. Um, that you would start knacking these patients because considering the, the risk 
benefit ratio that I, I mentioned earlier, the, the risk of hepatotoxicity and fulminant hepatic failure in patients um, is quite high if we don't if we kind of miss the boat. Yes. Um, particularly after that eight hour period from ingestion. So the benefit of starting NAC uh, is is important okay. um, to, to avoid that. And then you look at the risk benefit ratio of starting NAC empirically, you know, the risk factors associated with, with NAC itself and so adverse effects that, that can occur are anaphylactoid reactions. Um, mm. But again, the risk of that which can be managed with in ED, some adrenaline. Yeah, that's right. Um, obviously, is outweighed by the benefit of preventing that hepatotoxicity and that okay. hepatic failure. Um, mate, I'm going to throw one that's a bit older. Yeah, sure. go for it. Um, on on a different line. So we've got a 25 year old yep. male this time. Yep. We're going to bring the boys into it. Yeah. Um, who's had an intentional um, uh, overdose of paracetamol. Yep. Um, following an argument with his partner, um, he weighs about 75 kgs. Yep. So you know about me. Uh, and he's taken a single ingestion of 65 paracetamol, 500 milligram tablets, yep. um, four hours ago. Okay. Um, he denies ingestion of any other substance and denies any physical harm. Yeah. Um, how does he kind of differ from the other ones? Why is he Why is he a little bit different? Yeah. So if we if we calculate how much he's taken, he's he's taken 32.5 grams. So that's that's a large large amount of, of paracetamol, and then he falls into what we. Uh, Define as the, the massive overdose group. Yep. Um, and so a patient who has taken more than or equal to 30 grams of paracetamol um, meets this definition. Uh, the other the other calculation that also meets this definition is, is more than or equal to 500 milligrams per kilo. Okay. If we do get a paracetamol level back and they haven't taken that amount, but it is double or triple the treatment line, yep. then they also fall into the massive overdose um, uh, criteria. And so in these particular patients, we've got a lower threshold to start uh, activated charcoal or administer oral, oral activated charcoal. So instead of within two hours, we're going to extend that on to four hours mm -hmm. uh, in those cooperative conscious patients um, who have taken a, not a liquid formulation, but a oral formulation of, of mid-release paracetamol. And the reason for that is because these patients are at a higher risk of hepatotoxicity. So we're going to pull the trigger earlier with regards to uh, their NAC as well. Yep. And also modifying their, their dose. So that instead of, when I mentioned earlier that the standard two bag regimen, instead of um, having the standard two bag regimen, we actually double the dose of the second bag uh, so that we can try and um, reduce that risk of hepatotoxicity. Um, and these patients should be discussed with the with the poisons information center or yep. a uh, toxicologist. Toxicologist, sorry, um, if they have taken more than one gram per kilo or more than fifty grams, of, because their risk of um, hepatotoxicity is even higher still. Okay, and these are the people that we get pretty worried about. Yeah, that's right. Yep. yep. And do they do these? I mean, you're watching these guys pretty closely. I'm imagining yep. with the large dose, they're sitting in a resus bay. Yeah. Um, everyone knows that we're watching them. You know, their level of consciousness as well is quite important. Yes. And yep. I've noticed in these patients, personally, I've seen, you know, glucose levels drop to one or something random yes. as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you guys, but my brain is fried. It's like CSF is leaking out of my ears. Right now, Daniel Gattani is explaining to me paracetamol overdoses like it's nothing, like he's reading a textbook. This guy is so chill, you almost think he's bored when he's talking to you sometimes, but he's actually, that's he's excited. 
What's hard to get out of this is actually his human side. You know, he's very, almost seems cold in the way he approaches things. He, he details things quite clinically. But in there, there's a person who actually cares about what he does. Um, he may not be jumping around like I am in this interview, um, who can't sit still like I've got, you know, ants in my pants. But man, this guy actually really loves what he does. Um, he really cares about patients and he really wants people, even the people that he works with, um, to get better and to improve. And that was something that I really couldn't show in this interview. And I don't think really was displayed in our conversations during the podcast. I think it was cool also how Daniel um, really showed the different types of paracetamol overdoses that can come in and how you can approach each case differently, um, patient dependent. I love how he brought it back to the patient as well. Um, I love how he brought in mental health stuff. I love how he brought in, you know, deranged LFTs, looking at blood results. I think that's really cool and really informative. And I love that he wants everyone in the team to be included in practice from the triage nurse to the JMO to the registrar who's seeing the patient. Anyway, enough of my ramble. Let's get back into the podcast where Daniel unpacks some more of the paracetamol overdoses. So cool. Um, last one. Last one, let's go. Um, so at 60, I'm gonna go older. I'm gonna go 65, um, who's had a recent tragic loss of a son, has been brought in following um, a single um, super therapeutic ingestion of some modified release paracetamol. Okay. She weighs, let's just say 60 kgs. Yep. Uh, and has ingested about 20 um, Panadol for the sustained release. Yeah. Um, in that four hour, four hours ago. Okay. How do we approach her? Yeah, so again, she's different from the other cases that we discussed earlier. We discussed the Im- immediate release formulations, but she's taken a modified release formulation and she's taken a, an amount that equates to 12 grams. Um, so with regards to these patients, um, they're, they're different because in Australia, New Zealand and Europe, um, our modified release paracetamol formulations contain about 69% of modified release and 31% of immediate release paracetamol, and that, that equates to a 665 milligram tablet. Mm. Uh, it's, it's commonly known as Panadol Osteo. Um, we can't apply the RUMAC Matthew nomogram to these patients okay. um, to assess and determine the need for NAC uh, because of the persistently high paracetamol concentrations and the double paracetamol peaks and the ongoing absorption that occurs with the, with the modified release component. And so with patients such as this lady that's presented within four hours of ingestion, uh, we should be giving her charcoal yep. um, and then following up that with NAC, uh, again, making sure that there's no contraindications to the, the charcoal administration. Um, and patients who present beyond that four hour period, so not this patient, we should also be studying NAC on presentation as well. Okay. Um, and again, if we're considering a, a, a massive ingestion, so again, if we calculate their ingestion as more than 30 grams or more than um, 500 milligrams per kilo, then we're gonna increase that second dose of the NAC infusion and, and double the dose. Um, now with regards to measuring ongoing paracetamol levels we'll, we'll do one when they when they arrive um, if we don't have an actual time of ingestion but this lady is presented at four hours so we can take a four hour level and yep. then we'll take another one four hours from the first one yep. and then we can plot those on the nomogram just to see what her trajectory is um, but essentially these patients will have the full 20-hour infusion of um, N-acetylcysteine NAC 
regardless of what their paracetamol levels are. The, the infusion, as I mentioned earlier, should only be modified if that those levels come back at the, and they double or triple the nonogram treatment line. Dan, when do we call tox? So you're in ED, yep. you've got this patient, one of these patients. Yep. Who am I calling? Who are we calling tox over? Yeah. Um, and how do we call tox? Like yeah, you know. Yeah. So I, I, look, I, I encourage um, my triage nurses um, and the sim nurses to to call tox whenever a patient presents with an, an assumed or presumed uh, uh, ingestion, um, because, like I was mentioning earlier, we've got to have really high vigilance with trying to identify these high risk patients mm. where antidotes such as NAC can really change their outcome and prognosis. So I think if there's any doubt about whether this is a super therapeutic ingestion or what the toxicokinetics or what the uh, adverse effects are of a particular drug, then any toxicological service should be should be contacted from immediate point of contact. Yep. Um, with regards to paracetamol uh, in itself, um, we should be contacting either the Poison Information Centre, which is who we contact here at Campbelltown and Camden, or um, the Tox Fellow or Toxicologist on Call, which should be contacting um, at, at Sutherland. Uh, when patients present with um, massive ingestion, so more than 30 grams or more than 500 milligrams per kilo, especially those who have taken more than 50 grams or more than one gram per kilo. Okay. Um, if their paracetamol concentration is double or triple the nonogram treatment line, again, they've got a high risk of hepatotoxicity, so we need to engage those tox services early. If, there's, if these patients haven't actually presented with a um, intentional overdose, it might be an accidental yeah. um, super therapeutic administration of something like IV paracetamol that then then we should contact tox early. Or if there's any features of hepatotoxicity and that these can include an ALT of more than a thousand international units per litre. Okay, there yep. you go. And I found them really easy to talk to, irrespective of who you are. Yeah. You call them and they're like, oh cool, and they, they'll have a chat with you. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, quite give, and know, most of the time that you know that they're, they're pharmacists or or um yep. or doctors. Yep. Um, who have been trained up in in uh, this area, and then if there's any doubt, that they, they can always refer you on a toxicologist uh, who is a specialist in this area. Yep, and a lot, and it's interesting because a lot of emergency doctors have done some sort of toxicology in their yeah. studies as well, which is quite. Yep. You know, obviously, there's handbooks around everywhere. Yep, that's right. <laughs> now, mate, um, inpatient management. Um, when is it recommended? Well, I think you know anyone that's going to be admitted uh, following an overdose. Uh, regardless of whether it contains paracetamol or not, um, should have some sort of inpatient management uh, that's both psychosocial management and also medical management considered. So for patients who are receiving NAC, they'll need to be admitted under a, a medical team, as yep. we discussed earlier, and they'll need ongoing psycho psychosocial input. Um, we need to uh, involve uh, our in, uh, intensivist colleagues, if there's any um, ongoing airway or hemodynamic support uh, that is required, mm. um, they'll need to be kept in that ICU. And the other things that we need to think about for inpatient management are um, ongoing investigations. And so we, we mentioned those earlier about repeating the paracetamol level and the ALT and AST two hours prior to um, the 20 hour NAC infusion. Being completed to see if we need to continue the infusion or not. 
I guess the other thing that we need to think about um, with regards to inpatient management, uh, which of the patients we need to refer on to a transplant unit. Yep. Um, and who do we refer on? Yeah. The ones so, that we go, uh... Yeah, so I think um, this is, there's some criteria that we, we use um, to try and identify those patients at a higher risk of requiring transplants. And so we use the modified King's College criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guides us with respect to um, involving other specialists' uh, colleagues. So, you know, toxicologists, as we mentioned, um, transplant units, um, specialists, uh, medical retrieval if they're intubated and ventilated or need ongoing hemodynamic support. Yep. Um, and that, that modified King's College criteria include um, any patients who display evidence of clotting dysfunction, renal impairment, acid-base disturbance, cardiovascular disturbance or metabolic impairment and CNS involvement. Okay. Um, and so we can add those to the to the slides or yep, the show I'll notes. Yep. Um, but anyone that actually fits that modified King's College criteria, we should involve, be involving as many specialist groups as possible um, in order to expedite their transfer to a, a transplant unit to ensure they, they receive the appropriate care that they, they need. Yep. Yep. Dan, for people that are clinicians in EDs that want to find resources, yep. we'll put some in the show notes, case studies, yep. some journal articles. Yep. Where do you go to when you're on the field, when you're working in hospital, yep. and you're like, oh, I've got a you know girl that's coming with paracetamolidose. Yep. I know you're a brain, you know this stuff, but just yep. for people to find it, where would you go to? So all the cases that we've discussed today are all cases that have occurred locally, and and I've seen them at not just in our not just in our department, but other departments I've worked in. So they're quite common presentations. Mm. Um, with regards to paracetamol itself, um, all the recommendations and advice that I've given today uh, has come straight from the updated guidelines for management of paracetamol poisoning in Australia and New Zealand, which was published in the Medical Journal of Australia last year in twenty nineteen by Dr. Angela Chu and her colleagues that work out of Prince of Wales. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, and so that, that's an excellent resource. There's some excellent diagrams in there and flow charts and, and definitions um, about uh, paracetamol and what, what meets uh, supertherapeutic ingestion and a staggered ingestion. So that's a really good resource and that's, that's freely accessible if you were just to type in paracetamol overdose in Google, but yep. it's also available on the Emergency Care Institute ECI. website, so the ECI uh, under TOX. So in, in broader terms, um, with other patients who have not just taken paracetamol, but uh, any other uh, toxicological ingestion or exposure, that the, uh, the Toxicology Handbook, which is produced mm-hmm. here in Australia um, by a number of toxicologists that are based in in Perth is another amazing resource, yeah. um, and I, I highly recommend that. There's a, it's available as an app, um, which you'll need to pay for. It's available as a hard copy. It's only a small book that you can carry around in your scrubs or leave in your locker. Yep. It's an excellent resource. And then finally, if you're ever unsure about absolutely anything, then just refer to your all um, institution's top services. So yep. whether it be the Poisons Information Centre, on 13 11 26 or your local toxicologist um they're your go-to person yeah yeah 
Um, I, you know, was pretty surprised at just how in-depth paracetamol overdoses are. Yeah. And there's so many different avenues. It's not just simple. There is, there's some complexity to it. Yeah. When yeah. it was taken, what type of tablet was it? Yeah. How does it work in the GI tract? Yeah. That sort of stuff. Um, yeah. I reckon it was, it was pretty rad, dude. Yeah. Um, off topic and, you know, um, dude, we, I just have to touch on ultrasound. Yeah. I know why, because, um, you're a gun at using an ultrasound machine. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we'll just add this on as a little segment, but... Where, where, where are you using ultrasound at the moment? Because I feel like you're at the forefront of ultrasound in emergency medicine. How are you using your ultrasound machine at the moment? Um, and when do you use ultrasound? Um, yeah, look, I, I, I think... I'm not sure I'd really call myself a gun. I, I do use point-of-care ultrasound on a, on a daily basis on, on most patients that I see, and it's usually to answer some binary question to assist with my assessment and management disposition of patients. So. Yep. Um, if I want to clarify or narrow down my differentials, I'll use ultrasound. Yep. Um, and it's, it's very helpful when patients come with some sort of intra-abdominal pathology. Yep. Um, it's also helpful in those patients where you've got, who are, quite, who are critically unwell, who may have undifferentiated hypotension, and so you can either uh, diagnose what the cause is or guide your resuscitation. And it's also important to use in those undifferentiated arrested patients to try and, again, guide your, your management. Um, when do I use it? So yeah. I mentioned it, yeah, all the time, every day, most patients. Um, where am I at with regards to ultrasound? Yeah. So I think it's still an, an evolving area in emergency medicine. Yep. Uh, we're getting to the point now where we've now got handheld devices, so uh, they've been termed sonoscopes. Okay. So we're going to be moving away from the traditional stethoscopes towards sonoscopes, and that will hopefully aid us in improving patient outcomes and improving things like access block, block and overcrowding our departments. Also improve relationships with our inpatient teams mm-hmm. with regards to admitting, admitting and, and discharging patients. Um, where am I at with regards to evolving my ultrasounds? Yeah. I, I'm currently on the uh, ASIM uh, ultrasound committee and we're looking at a number of areas of how we can improve ultrasound in EDs across Australia. Yep. And so that's very exciting. I'm enjoying that a lot. Um, and locally, I'm trying to use ultrasound to broaden our, our scope of practice. Yeah. Um, and that's not just us as doctors, but also for um, nurse practitioners and other nurse specialty specialist groups, such as um, the CNS groups, uh, to Credential them in things like ultrasound guided vascular access, yeah. um, again to improve uh, patient care and outcomes. Performing regional anaesthesia, uh, again to improve patient care with respect to pain relief and also facilitate other procedures to improve admission, discharge, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, and, and I, why I talk about it is because you first introduced me to using an ultrasound machine. Yep. Um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yep. Um, obviously did some training on it and was able to use it to block, um, you know, we, we did like hip fractures. Yeah. And, and for me, that was so good to see a patient in agony, in pain, yep. and no longer see a confused... Well, it wasn't good to see that. Yeah. It was good to see the upper. Exactly effect, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, true, true, true. And I think it was good, you know, the patient previously would have had tendon morphine being confused, yeah. trying to get out of bed. 
from using local anaesthetic with ultrasound machine. Yeah, even I mean, even the the ACE, ACE and the Australian College Australasian College of Emergency Medicine um, has recognised that regional anaesthesia and ultrasound guided regional anaesthesia is is a core skill that trainees and emergency medicine physicians should have, and they've incorporated that into their new curriculum. Um, and it's something that we should be doing on a daily basis to assist patients like the one that you highlighted there, the elderly patient who's at risk of, of delirium and all the other opioid associated adverse effects such as constipation, retention and uh, nausea and vomiting. Using opioid sparing techniques such as regional anaesthesia I think is the, the next thing for emergency medicine. I think we'll start using that to, to improve uh, you know, patient care, yep. high risk groups, but also to improve throughput through the department. So, yep. you mentioned earlier about a patient with a shoulder dislocation who we did an interscalene block on to facilitate um, reduction of their shoulder dislocation. You know, we, we were getting patients through the department, you know, within half an hour of presentation, uh, which yep. would be a lot longer if we were, use, were to use parenteral sedation and analgesia. So, and also, you know, avoid the risks associated with giving ketamine or propofol and those other IV agents to facilitate reduction. So, I think it's a it's an evolving area. It's an exciting area. Yep. And I know I'm going to get you back to talk about ultrasound and do a yep. quick video because you are. It's great to work with you. Yep. Yep. Um, and you've empowered a lot of people with ultrasound and yep. ultrasonography. Um, so it's it's exciting. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Funniest thing you've um funniest thing you've heard a kid say on ketamine. <laughs> um. <laughs> I was uh, working with um, another consultant when I was a registrar and basically he looked over to her and asked for her number um, and uh, asked if she was going out with anyone at that particular time. So I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Did he get and, the number? And the patient was only 12. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, mate. Yeah. Um, mate, and you know, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yep, it's been a pleasure same. for you to come out of your role and I wanted to say also during COVID um, you know you're at the forefront especially out here where it's quite busy as well yep. during COVID um, we are so grateful and respect um, you know what you do as a clinician um, and thank you for you know serving the community as well yeah thank you very much Ben um, it's been an absolute pleasure yep and um, we'll talk to you soon thank you very much see you Dan Woo bye bye any advice given on the ED jam should not be taken over your local medical practitioner. just want to shout out and say thank you to everyone who's been listening to my podcast. Thanks to everyone who's been following me um, on Instagram. Um, please follow me on Instagram. Please leave your reviews on iTunes as well. Um, I've got heaps of cool content coming up um, this next month uh, and coming into August and September. I'm really pumped. Um, I know everyone's busy, especially in the hospital at the moment with COVID stuff. Um, but thank you so much for everyone who listens. Um, and yeah, keep listening to the ED Jam. Thank you, Frothers. Bye. Woohoo!